I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. I'm Jill Braithwaite, and I'm speaking to you from a field of invaginate volunteer beans here in the Great Concavity. That's um, a new one for our podcast. We've never had I, the invention no. volunteer beans. That's from the f- <laughs> first paragraph of our first okay. chapter of the Pale King. Yes, mm. thank you. I did you it. did like you get it? We are it, all Dave? of us brothers. That, yes, that yes. Section? Okay, it, yeah. I don't remember the word invaginate. Oh, I do. I, <laughs> I mean, it's a hard word to forget. So, I don't, as I, don't I recall, know. it's a made-up plant. In that long list of grasses, there's one oh, or two that are yeah. made up. Does that ring a bell for either well, of you? I will say that okay. there are, vo- <laughs> you know, the idea of volunteer plants and volunteer beans are a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but invaginate, I think, is a adjective that just describes the shape of the yes. volunteer bean. So, so yes, like I think he did make that up <laughs> of putting the two together. And yes. I also want to go back and correct myself and say that it's the first section of the Pell King, which is broken into sections rather than chapters. Correct. Oh, yes. if, um, it could be also called a paragraph, could it not? It, and, you know, that that's an interesting Can we point. agree on the definition of this term? A paragraph is a thing, yes. Um, <laughs> but it, it was originally published, um, you know, not as part of the Pale King, just as part of, like, a, a prose poem. It and, was? Yes. Mm. And, and it was mm. not credited as such in the copyright page of the Pale King, which has always bothered me. Mm. Um and that that is you know just because I'm a stickler for copyright permissions. Sure, sure. Um, Where was it published as a um, poem? You know, and I feel like a total noob for not knowing this because it's off the top of my. It's not oh. Agni. It's it was in a literary journal. I'm going to pull mm. it up right quick, and we sure. can edit this later to make it sound like I knew it right sure. off the top of my head. Sure, yeah, but, I can um, I can cover you on that one, Matt. No problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, that paragraph makes my heart sing. I love it so it's much. It's one of the best things. And I mean, to mm-hmm. see it as the opening yeah. of the Pale King, I will say also that I've seen the um, order of the sort of stack that was left on you know Wallace's desk when he died. And mm-hmm. that was not the opening. Um, Is that right? That's right. And Peaches doing as Michael Peach is doing, but like I, I don't fault him for it per se. I think it's a great opening. I just didn't even know or realize that it was part of a um, a novel, you know, because it mm-hmm. just seems so disconnected from everything else, even in that novel. You know? For sure, for yeah, sure, it's yeah. very much about putting you where you are. Here's where we are, rural Illinois. <laughs> Here's what it's like to stand outside that office building yes. and look into the distance, right? And then also we just have like a universal common humanity that we share too in the midst of that. Right. That gorgeous. Let me just, let me just frame that. <laughs> we are all of us brothers. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. And you just sort of mentally correct for the gender there. Yeah, of course. Who was it that recently made a comment about that? I think it was, was it Jeff on the last episode, Matt? Who said yes, that it's he like did. an inherently mm-hmm. gendered phrase. Mm-hmm. Or could have said brothers and sisters or siblings, I guess even. Yeah. I think I, did I mention to you guys, I just read that paragraph uh, last weekend at a, funeral you did mention that yeah of a friend who she and i were together in an arts practicum at seminary and one of my my major project there was making three handmade books using wallace texts and Mm. the first book was using exactly that that paragraph from the pale king and she loved it so much this friend of mine who passed away 
And so that was what I shared at her service. Mm. That that sounds really rich and meaningful. And it was also about how, you know, we're both, we both had this Midwestern identity, which is not something you think about a lot in terms of a personal identity, but it's certainly yeah, yeah. an important part of one's identity, the landscape mm. you know that's in your bones. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, huh. you know, for me, when I first read that thing, I associated it with like Wallace kind of trying to show off a bit mm, and mm. you know and and trying to be a little bit like Cormac McCarthy you know he'll talk <laughs> yeah. about like the sagebrush frustrating dusk light and all of that like <laughs> oh that's um, from the Royal Tenenbaums right right, right. well it's a parody of, <laughs> of yeah, McCarthy totally. right um, <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts yeah. by the way. Um, but I, w- in the context of being in the Pilking I really feel like it is um I don't know. It's it's more vital to the to the book, more vital to the yeah. story, mm-hmm. um, and I I don't know if you remember this in the 2015 David Foster Wallace conference in Illinois. Um, my buddy Jeff Kelza Loya read yeah, yeah. memorized it, mm-hmm. and he got up and read it from memory, and I was like, wow, that that is a it is almost like a poem. Mm-hmm. Right? It is. Very much uh, a litany about I, that landscape. Yeah. I should probably like follow this up with a question. I realize that was more of a statement <laughs> than, <laughs> than a question, but um, I, we're, I realize we're still on your opening and we haven't introduced you. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that right quick. Who is this? Uh, Who is this is this we're talking grass? right? Talking um, about made up grass. So today we're on episode twenty whatever, but we're talking with twenty seven. Twenty seven. We're talking with yeah. um, Jill Braithwaite. And Jill is a Wallace scholar, whether she wants to admit it or not. <laughs> sure. Recovering um, Wallace scholar. She has a master's degree in theology and the arts. As she was just mentioning, she developed some pretty awesome handmade books. Would you say they're handmade books? Yeah, that's exactly they're Handmade books. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really like your... I, I've only seen pictures of them, unfortunately, but I hope to see them in person one day. Mm-hmm. Um and Jill is also a uh, publishing professional. I should say that, yeah. you know, I've met Jill, I think, at the first Wallace Conference. Was that was that right? That's right. Almost three years ago, right? Almost three years ago. So that was 2014 in 14, Illinois? 14, right. I was not there, but I met both of you the following year in 2015. Right. 2015, yeah. right. And yeah. 2014, I was just starting to work on my thesis, and so I went to that, that yes, conference. Yeah. It's just kind of like a treat to... Check it out. Listen and learn. Yeah, yeah. That that was interesting because I felt like you were forming some ideas for your thesis, but it was pretty well formed. It felt very well formed. And well, I think it took a lot of turns from there. I was thinking more <laughs> about AA and twelve step theology at the time. That's and true. And I think as I over the course of the year, I, I walked away from that and got more into Tillichian theology. But it was mm-hmm. still really good to be there. There was so little about religion, is what I remember. Right. Yeah. That was so much of my process was it, it, there wasn't that much about on Wallace and religion at the time, or at least that I was finding. Mm-hmm. And then right as I was finishing up is when I started to see a lot more things. Yeah, totally. And then I had a really funny meeting with you, Jill, when we when we first met. I saw oh, that's right. on, on the the conference schedule, there was a talk by you entitled, Dying to Give Our Lives Away, Infinite Jest as a Rich Resource for a Renewed Theology of Sin and Salvation, which is the title of your master's thesis. That's right. And I was like... <laughs> Really excited that somebody was talking about the same kind of stuff and interested in the same kind of stuff as I was. But I was also like a little bit heartbroken because 
maybe my thesis has been written <laughs> by somebody else. <laughs> and right. Then, what, and then I was kind of like, I had my eye open for you at the conference. I was like, who's Jill Braithwaite? I got I to gotta either talk to her and like find out what kind of her angle is here or just right. totally avoid her. Right, and, erase uh, her from my and mind. Erase her from, <laughs> yes. Which is the, the less scholarly of the two options. <laughs> correct, correct. So anyways, we were introduced, I think maybe even by you, Matt. Uh, um, in, the, in the big book room, possibly. Yeah. I mean, there, then... <laughs> there is that anxiety of influence. And I remember yes, Dave, totally. Dave yeah. voicing this to me, um, just that you and I, you and Jill were working on similar, you know, concepts. Not yes. necessarily, not necessarily in the same direction. No, because um, I, you know, I had talked to Jill about a totally different set of ideas than I had talked to you about. Um, but the idea that I think Wallace moved more directly into theology later in life, that's interesting. You know, the Pale King yeah. um, is evidence of that, I think. Mm-hmm. But I want to get your, you know, your opinion on that, Jill, because I know that at least in 2014, maybe in both of those conference papers, you were talking mostly about Infinite Jest. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think Dave, Dave, I just was refreshing my memory about your thesis mm-hmm. this weekend, Dave, reading it mm-hmm. and... And I think there is interesting overlap between our two things. We, sure. we can get into this, but it, but they're very distinct, but still there's there's some overlap. Absolutely, there is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it was actually nice. I, I got to re- read your thesis and then incorporate a lot of your ideas into mine and, you know, use you as a, as a voice of established scholarship from mm, which to, mm-hmm. to project my argument. So it worked so out very established, much better. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> safely ensconced in the library at my small seminary in suburban Minneapolis. Oh yeah, I can't even say that. I I've, I've never printed mine off like even out of my printer. It's just really? all electronic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I sh- I could get it bound one of these days, but I just I just haven't. That's part of my seminary does that. That's what they do for all master's thesis. They oh, that's they find nice. you pay for binding and they do it and put it in the stacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Beautiful. cool. Yep. And I want to give a shout out because we do have a lot of listeners in the Minneapolis area. Is that right? Uh, yeah. And I know for a fact we've had people write in from um, That's true, yeah. Minnesota. And so I think that the people who are from there are very loyal to their roots. And, what up, uh, Minneapolis? Just Let's just throw <laughs> that out there. But, right on. Um, yes. You know, I wanted to go back and just say I did find that it was in Tricorderly. Tricorderly Magazine yeah. in 2002 published that excerpt from The Pale King under the title of Peoria Number no. 4. Hmm. And then they published another excerpt of it um, under the title of Peoria that was about the, you know, it's springtime, think farm safety. And <laughs> I just want to say that it's we're recording this right now in springtime. So if anyone is out there um, who can think about farm safety... Mm-hmm. Now, now's the time. I'm thinking um, about it. Think about farm safety. Um, <laughs> don't don't put your hand in the thresher. Don't do it. Right. You live in the Midwest. But dude. that goes to say that, you know, one of the alternate titles of, of um, The Pale King, which we learned from David Herring, was what is Peoria for? Mm. And that number four in the title, like, oh, Peoria number four. Mm. Maybe he's saying, like, what is Peoria for? And, you know, there's this big idea in Hollywood of like will it play in Peoria? Ah, uh, yes. And so I've always thought that there's a connection there between Wallace choosing, you know, Peoria as that the title of that even though it doesn't really appear in the the excerpt itself. 
But if you want to Google it or pull it up on your book or get it off the shelf, I want to invite you later in the episode to just read from that opening thing. Is that right? Yeah, I would like to. Sure, yeah. I would like to have some of that just just on record because I like to hear other people read it. And mm. uh, you know, I remember when it came out um, in book form in 2011. I wrote a thing on um, my blog, simpleranger.net, about how I had um, remembered some of the words in that opening paragraph from brief interviews. Hmm. That uh, one of my favorite pieces of Wallace writing is brief interviews number 20, the, mm-hmm. the granola cruncher, right? Mm-hmm. And in there, the victim in the story is thrown to the ground and looks at the the plants, the vegetation, and she sees some of the same vegetation that comes up in that. Hmm. Uh, shatter cane, lamb's hmm. quarter, cut grass. So all of those really, um, I don't know, evocative names of plants hmm. was something that Dramatic. Wallace had, had dealt with you know, long before The Pale King was published. Mm. And, and you know, uh, Brief Interviews, I think, came out in 1998, 1999, something like that. So, I mean, that's going back, you know, oh, a decade, more than a decade before The Pale right, King yeah. eventually was published. Mm. So that, those ideas, um, maybe not ideas, but just names, you know, I mean, that Wallace was a guy who loved names, obviously. Right. Uh, so and there's I, the, the, the great list of rock in there too quartz and church schist, and schist yeah. you know. <laughs> i love it well, good stuff but i mean that sticks with you like it's probably mm-hmm. one of the only guys who wrote about like lamb's quarter as a, mm-hmm. as a plant so i want to hear you read from that later if you will pull that up uh, right on that um, sounds nice i wasn't even done with your intro Okay. <laughs> like from like 10 minutes ago. Like, Welcome to our very professional podcast, Joe. Hey, it's our, and here's a good question for you. I've been asking people lately is um, talking about how hard it is to interview your fellow um, human beings. Mm. Who, who is your top, like, give me like top three or four interviewers in the world. with some of the best like interviews you've seen? I'm curious about that. Interviews. Uh, I love Mark Maron's podcast so much. So I love what he does in interviews. Ditto. Love him. Big fan there. I also like Pete Holmes' podcast. You know his. Oh, my God. My older brother turned me onto this. John loves Pete Holmes. I mean, he's he's very, very present and energetic and in there in those interviews. But I love it. He gets a lot out of people. He he goes down the spiritual path with people. He makes usually makes people answer the question, "Do you believe in God?" (laughs) Tell me how often you get asked that. He's a comedian, though. Yeah, yeah, and he's so silly and funny. So it's a not classic interview style. He's no Terry Gross, but he gets it done in a really interesting way. Other interviewers, I think we have this. Carrie Miller is a Minnesota public radio interviewer that does a lot of books uh, related programming, talking volumes. I've seen her sit with a lot of the greats and she's done cool series like literary partnerships. Sounds great. I'm going to look her up. I don't know. Yeah, she's really good. Speaking of the greats, Jill, you recently saw George Saunders uh, live in person do do a reading. That was like a week or two ago. Yeah, he did a, yeah. an, an event at the Parkway Theater here in Minneapolis. The Rain Taxi uh, Journal put that on. Mm. And that was great to see him. They did a staged mm-hmm. reading with multiple voices from Lincoln right, and the yeah. Bardo. That was yes. incredible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Parmar Superstar great. and John Moe were two of the readers. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really fun. Wow. Cool. And Saunders himself read Lincoln's part. Yeah, yeah. 
That's good. Have I'm, you finished uh, Lincoln and the Bardo yet, Jill? I'm like 50 pages from the end. How about you okay. guys? Uh, I'm about 100 pages in so far. Yeah. Maybe a bit you, more than that. What do you think? So far, so good. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's the kind of book that you'll want to reread at least the first 50 pages because mm-hmm. now you get a sense of like the characters and the flow, whereas early on it's a little bit confusing yep, yep. in terms of like the style of layout. Yeah, so, the form is so unusual. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's like it, barely it even like a, a novel. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it even a novel? Is it even a novel? <laughs> it's it definitely the question. And especially bits of nonfiction as collage. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I wonder, like, are some of those historical uh, passages, are they things that he researched and just took right from the accounts and put them in? Or are they the answer all is yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Most okay. of them are. He yeah. made up a few of them are fictionalized. Okay, yeah, yeah. Most of them are real. Yeah. That's cool. He talked about, have you heard him talk about um, literally sitting on his floor for months at a time with cut up pieces of paper where he's, t- you know, he's transcripted excerpts on uh-huh. his own and then cut up pieces of paper and moving them around collage style. Oh, that's cool. How to arrange those bits. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I have not heard him talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah, I'm I'm digging it. I think it's so bold and ballsy what he's doing. Though, how about you, Matt? I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm very glad that I've read. You know, I'm over halfway through it, um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm gonna finish the whole thing. I loved Tenth of December a lot, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I loved you know Civil War Land and Bad Decline <laughs> is is yeah. still up there, and just individual stories of his that I could name that. Um, you know, I would love to talk about, right. um, I, I really like, for example, I really love his story, the Simplica girl diaries, which is sort of like a novella oh that's, my God. that's in, you know, it was originally in the New Yorker. It was in the 10th of December. That's okay. incredible. That story. It blows which me away. Story is that one? Is that the one it's where they're like the, the, the Christmas girls. lights and they're like strung up in front of the house? Yeah. But yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Dude. Yeah, that's haunting. And yes. it just and it just ends in such a way that I felt like he could have made that into a novel. Yeah, sure. Or a short novel. Um so the fact that like the form there is very interesting mm-hmm. um to me. But the thing I liked about Lincoln and the Bardo so far is just that I before I read this, I didn't know really that, you know, Lincoln had, had a child who died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just didn't that was not part of my like radar at all. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm also kind of at the same time going back and forth reading that and Steve Erickson's new book called Shadow Bond, mm. uh, which I don't know if you guys have read Steve Erickson, but no, he's mm-hmm. kind of a Wallace uh, friend. And that oh, he, yeah. hmm. he, was a, he, he started publishing about the same year. His first book came out in 1985. And I think, you know, Broom in the System came out in 1987. And he, he was a California guy. He still lives in California. And he started a journal in 2008 called Black Clock hmm. that uh, Wallace donated a story for Oblivion for that uh, journal in 2008. But Erickson's new novel is about, um, it's set in like tw- the year 2021, the slightly distant future, which is like kind of infinite jesty yeah, to me. Totally. Uh, slightly distant future and the twin towers suddenly just reappear in South Dakota. <laughs> oh yeah. No. And, wow. and their sole occupant is the stillborn twin of Elvis Presley. Whoa. And Jesse Presley. 
And, wow. you know, a lot, I think a lot of people, and self-included, didn't realize, like, Elvis Presley had a stillborn twin. Yes, that's one of the mysteries that. of Elvis's death, the misspelled middle name on right. the tombstone. Yep, right. Aaron, right, and uh, Garen. It's this, it's, this is a whole lot of stuff about twins. Mm. Um, so that thing about, you know, Lincoln had a child who died. Mm. Um I, you know, I think there's. I've just seen a lot of similarities of reading those two books back to back. Hmm, cool. Um, so I would recommend the Steve Erickson book, Shadow Bond. I was yeah. talking with our our friend Mike Miley about this book recently. Matt Luter and a lot of the people I I respect their taste have turned me onto it. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. cool. I was like sold. I got to get it. You know. Yeah, yeah I will look for that. <clears throat> good. Um, and it's it's really well done. If you haven't read his other stuff too, it's it's all very good. Um, and he's a guy who I actually read before I read Wallace. Uh, so I, I'm just tracking his career over like, you know, past 25 years or something. It's been interesting because he's written just wildly different things. Mm-hmm, and, um, mm-hmm. um, I want to go back just a second and reintroduce Jill. Let's pretend like we just started 30 <laughs> 20 minutes, minutes ago. In. Right. Um, so Jill, as we mentioned, wrote this thesis on Wallace and we're going to get into that a little bit talk about that as we mentioned you live in Minnesota you work in publishing which I can also relate to and I feel like Jill um, I want to say I I feel like Jill is like a mentor to me and not only in publishing but just in life and Jill is uh, works at a company called Learner and you'd worked there before but also worked before that um, at Capstone and Capstone created a product that my kids love, and maybe Jill created this product called Pebble oh. Go. Pebble Go. Your kids know that. Not only do they know that, we have it <laughs> bookmarked as regular usage in our house. That's amazing. That's and, my baby. Yeah, that's amazing. So Pebble Go cool. is in, in our schools. Like wow. Yeah. Every class in the school, like they taught me about Pebble Go. Nice. That um, was great. I knew nothing about digital products when we were starting to develop that, but there was this idea that. There was no subscription database that was truly appropriate for the kind kindergartners through second grade. And so I started doing research and talking to customers and asking what they didn't like about what was out there. And my first mock-ups for that product were I made using a PowerPoint slide mm-hmm. and drawing shapes on it for what a home screen <laughs> would look like. And then literally standing at a focus group in Reno, Nevada at a conference <laughs> of school librarians and asking them about what they would like in a database and showing them printouts of these screens and talking with them about them and then building a prototype. Well, our, <laughs> our school loves it and pays for it. and That's so great. We um, are supposed to use it over spring break. It's spring break nice. to, uh, as of right now. So, you know, we don't want even a, a week of brain drain in the house. Exactly. <laughs> no summer slide. Um, no kids are all leaving to yeah. Houston. They're like getting better paying jobs over there. And stuff. <laughs> Not that bad, but, um, <laughs> you know, oh, we, that's so fun. Yeah. We've tried other, um, kids databases that were not as good so we really like Pebble Go. Yeah, it's very um, much an orchestrated for success experience for so, the young researchers. See? And Oops, I'm, I'm doing a commercial. No, no, I love it <laughs> and I just predict that there are, you know, of our millions of listeners, mm-hmm. uh, there are thousands of other people like me who have kids who have used Pebble Go. Right on. So yeah. that, that to me is That's a great. You, it's you, good you can just rest easy now, Joe. Sure, like you've done that. you've done Pebble Go and That's right. like now that you've done that, like, um, but you've also done a ton of other 
awesome publishing projects and books and stuff. I've worked, so. Yeah, I've worked in children's mm -hmm. books for 20 odd years and I love that world. So, I love the combination right. of the written word and the visual component. For me, those mm -hmm. working with those two things, putting them together has been great, great fun. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. we're a big fans of your work, so I just want to give you a shout out, like That's awesome. on a totally different level that we norm normally don't get to talk about on this podcast. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I I really really like Pebble Go. Oh, that's great! <laughs> that's so fun. That's really terrific. It's, it's really great product, mm -hmm. and um, my kids do use it all the time. Animals. Amazing. It's got Spanish. It's it's fantastic. Those little games. We made up little yes. games and report <laughs> templates. Yes. Share what you know, I think it's called. Share what you know. You know it. You know that's what it's called. Uh, that's cool. Uh, that's in addition, cool. Jill is also a huge tennis enthusiast. And yes. Jill, you and I, since meeting, the, f the first day we met, we moved very quickly from the topic of religion to the topic of tennis mm -hmm. and discovered that we both love Roger Federer very much. Very, very much. He's, he's main man. And he is me, the main man. And for me, it was because, uh, because of Wallace's writing. It's the reason that I got interested in like tennis at all in the first oh, place. That's right. And then yeah. into like watching professional tennis because of the Federer piece. Nice, um, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I've had mad love for tennis like since way, way back. <laughs> yeah, you're like a, a you're little OG. kid. I'm like a new, new poser kind of. <laughs> I remember as a little kid weeping when McEnroe beat Borg in oh that 1980 at Wimbledon. It was just devastated. I love Bjorn Borg so much. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a wooden racket era. It's like wooden racket. That's so right. Like, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. And Head I played tennis in high school. Yep. And then, yeah. then I was away from tennis for a while. And then it was like in 04 when Federer was dominating that I yes. caught wind of him and was like, oh, yeah, tennis. <laughs> started really enjoying that again. This looks more elegant than ever uh, with Roger dominating the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, in the last few years, Roger has not won a major. And, you know, you and I have decried that fact several times, I think, through email over, over the last couple of years. It's but, been painful the last few years. You know? <laughs> it has. But we got to experience uh, the, the amazing joy of Roger not only winning another major, but who did he beat, Jill? And why is that significant? I believe he beat a man <laughs> named Rafael Nadal. <laughs> And what's I mean, significant about that for you? Let's let's um let's boy, where do we start with this? I mean, what we love about Federer is the beauty, right? The style, the elegance of the way he plays. But also plus did you, there's this book I read last year called Federer and Me: A Story of Obsession. Did you oh, see really? that book? No. By William Skidelsky. He's this guy who's the literary editor of The Observer in the UK. Okay. And he chronicles his obsessive fandom. And its role in his life, and he had he had really. It's I totally recommend it. There's some parts that aren't super exciting, but the parts of his analysis of Roger's game are glorious. He he gets it, brings his analysis down to the angle of the arm, and what is so beautiful about Roger? It's about oh, his wrist uh, flexibility. Mm -hmm. All these other players are contorting their arms in with the modern game, but what he says is so glorious about Roger is not just the beauty of the game, but it's that combined with the savageness of the way he wins a point, oh, the okay. aggressiveness of his tennis. And that is, that, isn't that the experience where he just eviscerates someone, mm -hmm. but in this gorgeous way <laughs> that, that no one else could ever imagine? Like so often that's what commentators say about the shots. Yeah, No one else would have even seen that shot mm -hmm. to imagine it. So that's what I love, the imagination. So in, the, contrast to, to Rogers, so in contrast to Rogers, like, like elegance. We have a Spaniard. Um, <laughs> Whereas Federer appears to be both flesh and light, to borrow a phrase from 
David Foster Wallace uh-huh. and this embodiment of kinesthetic beauty. I would say that Raphael appears to carry the sport like a heavy burden. <laughs> there is no joy in his tennis. Uh-huh. He heaves himself and flings himself around the court, mm-hmm. grunting loudly. Who am I pissing off with saying these things about? <laughs> there are a lot of Nadal fans out there. His <laughs> forehand, I would say, is more like an anvil than a liquid mm-hmm. whip. Oh, that's a oh, good way to put it. One. Yeah, you think? Yeah. Just like right, like his arm just goes way up over his head and like a hel- like a helicopter kind of every shot. And do you want to try to do the grunt? It's horrible. No. <laughs> do you also want to do all of his like nervous ticks before he serves every point? I can't. I can't <laughs> even talk best. about that. I can't talk about it. It's too irritating. I can barely yeah. watch that. And it's let's funny. not even talk about the sleeveless shirts and the man prees. <laughs> man, and he scowls a lot too, right? Like, I mean, the scowling. I feel like. Uh-huh. This doesn't work for me. It's a snarl. I mean, I also think he's actually a lovely person, and he's a great sport, is, and yeah. has a lot of respect. <laughs> I, w- I will had, offer yes. a, a counter distinction that I yes. actually really like Rafa. He's probably my like second favorite tennis player, or or close to it. But the problem with that is, if you're a Federer fan, is that historically Rafa has had Roger's number. Like he's won what at like sixty six percent of their matchups, or maybe even more. No, I don't know why you'd want to bring out numbers like that. Oh, That's just come on. Not very nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Roger owns most people, and then for some reason, Rafa just has Federer figured out. Like, yeah, like he, he's in his head. It, there was, like, during those <laughs> totally. years where, yeah, yeah, you could just feel, like, I would just, like, shrink on my couch, just kind of like, shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> like the 2008. Sagging, the sadness. And you yeah. just would pin him in that backhand corner so badly. And Roger <laughs> couldn't get out, couldn't get out. And this match... Last mm-hmm. or in January or February, whenever that Australian Open final was, was just a completely different thing. Yeah. Roger played an entirely different backhand against him, and it was glorious. It was glorious. I, I was up watching it till at four thirty. Uh, oh, did you? A yes. Of mine came over at midnight. We watched like till the bitter end. It was great. <laughs> oh, the best! That weekend, I had a conference. I was working like these long ten-hour days, and I would just crawl home at night and open up my laptop and watch the replay oh, and yeah. get up early the next morning to watch the rest of it. it was mm-hmm. <laughs> so amazing. Such a shocking, mm-hmm. joyful surprise. It was, yeah. Because he didn't even play for months before. Six months he Six was months out. Six months he yeah. was out. That was a knee surgery? Yeah, there was a knee injury. It's like from bathing, a... bathing his kids and he like right. tweaked something in his knee. <laughs> that's right. And he, tra- he played for, he had the surgery and then he played for a while, but he... It just wasn't fully healed, and he decided to go ahead and take six months. The way he talks about it is he's taking six months to try to ensure two or three more years of play. Mm-hmm. Are you are you a fan of that decision, or would you like to see him retire on a high note right now? I sit quietly and thank God that he's alive and playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and respect his decision. I mean, yeah, I'm not, totally. not going to question Roger Federer's I'm decisions yeah. about his health. Totally. I mean, there's also that, like, don't you, do you have the thing of, like, a sort of brace for, I'm braced for the retirement. It could happen anytime. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's semi-inevitable, but he also obviously looks so good and healthy, and he, I mean, right. I think he could play for another few more years and still be wildly competitive. He doesn't right. look, he doesn't look the same to me, though. I mean, he looks more grizzled and thinner and older and well that's you're just being very I, I, very mean no no i'm, I'm being as <laughs> as complimentary as possible here. no you're and absolutely right i know he very much is a grizzled i mean think of the time they spend in the sun these guys well and you know uh, the, the tennis players just don't age the same as other athletes <laughs> right you don't see too many like 
50-year-old professional right. athletes. They're like ropey and it's sinewy. Very ropey and sinewy. <laughs> but I mean, I got to hand it to this guy because I think any athlete where you're down, right, and he could easily make an excuse and say, oh, I haven't played in six months or I haven't competed in a year and he hasn't won a major in a, you know four years or something. He could yeah. say, oh, I made it to the quarters. I'm fine. That was an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. But, but that guy... He's not mm. like that. He's not no. built like that. He's always looking to just destroy everyone in his own way. Yeah. You know, he, like yeah, quietly just, just take you down. Yep. And Silently so deconstructing much. his opponent. Yep. He is. And he's very polite about it, but he's not going to just say he's happy with getting to the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's incredible to me because mm-hmm. even at that level, I think there's a lot of high level tennis players that say, I have nothing to prove. You know, I'm just, yeah. I'm just, you know, it's a grand slam and whatever. Done with it. Yep. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Not him. Yeah. No, there's something great. Yeah. Just glorious about him. I saw a tweet once that said that Roger Federer is better at tennis than anyone else is at anything. <laughs> That's hard to debate, actually. Is That's Roger right. Federer better at tennis than David Foster Waller, Wallace was at writing? Whoa. I, I would put him on similar, you know, because <laughs> sure. yeah. uh, for me, Wallace is not perfect, right? Wallace is hit or miss. Yeah. And Roger's not perfect. And, and, and Roger's not perfect. He doesn't win every Grand Slam he participates in. That's right. right. Uh, and he's hit or miss, right? And some days he's off. He did win Wimbledon for like a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like seven times. Seven times. And I mean, that's, or wait, is it eight? Seven uh, or eight? A lot in a one, row, one, right? Like that, seven yeah. in mm-hmm. a row or something crazy. It's pretty good. That's pretty good. And I mean, the to me, that competitiveness does not translate to writing right <laughs> literature right. there's not literally a winner uh, and a loser unless you count book awards which are yeah exactly but I, but I think wallace did feel that way somewhat and uh, mm. you know i want to i want to make a point here that it's been on my mind uh, as i read a, a tweet which i hate saying like honestly i hate right. that it's the worst word uh, i yeah. hate saying that but i, I i'm sorry I, I started it no <laughs> no no it's it's been on my mind regardless of what you said but i try and um, use the, the phrase twitter post or posted on twitter <sighs> rather than saying tweeted or you know <laughs> but you know i i've been on twitter for a long time and i'm just like i'm really getting sick of it lately like i feel like mm. oh, there's yeah. just more hate than love than there used to be yeah it's yeah good. social media is a completely Dark. transformed experience god no not fun like it used to be it's killing me but I, and i well, go back to say competitiveness right i was talking with a mm-hmm. friend who i consider a really strong reader like mm-hmm. i trust his judgment in anything that he reads he's a super intelligent reader and he said that if Wallace had just written Infinite Jest, that would be enough. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I sort of feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like no one looks at Cervantes and be like, oh, I should have done five more novels. Sure. <laughs> you know, or no one looks at, you know, I don't know, Chaucer. And it was like, well, what's, you know, Canterbury Tales part three? <laughs> right. Like, well, we don't, you don't need to do more. Like once you right. do one, like that's probably enough for like immortality. There's a lot of folks like that. Harper Lee. Harper Lee. I mean, yeah, yeah. fucking Homer, right? And like right. two books. Right. <laughs> right. Like, two books. Right. like you don't need to overdo it so much. Like, but this publishing culture that we live in is just like, man, what are you doing next year? It's mm. like, I don't know. Like I'm, short stories, I guess, the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and Saunders is kind of in that way, right? People are like, when is he going to come out with a novel? When is he going to come out with a novel? Right. Sure. Yeah. 
But there's this idea that kills me with Wallace out there. And if you have this feeling, no offense, but I disagree with it, which is that, you know, he's a better journalist than he was a novelist. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's not what gives him like literary immortality. It was is infinite jest. And mm-hmm. was like, if you just did that, that's enough. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is, I don't mm-hmm. want to bring it back to the tennis too much, but there's even like a mode of going past that of saying like, well, Wallace was a really great interviewer. He was really great interviews. You know, he has got all these mm-hmm. books of like interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could read his interviews are really influential and people cite them in, you know, scholarship, yes, <laughs> people cite them in scholarship, right? His interviews. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you could give an interview and you could write essays and that don't make you literary immortal in my opinion. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a strange kind of hypothetical land. You're often when you say <laughs> he could have just written infinite jest and it would be enough. Why, why, why the need to even make that statement? Well, cause he only published, he didn't publish a novel after it in his lifetime. Sure. And I, and I think that, you know, reading about his biography, that was definitely something that he thought about. Right? Hmm. Is it like, oh, sure, sure, sure. Can yeah. can you top this book? Can you can you keep up with that? Sure, but then the, this art kind of artificial competition between the nonfiction and the right. the novels and the stories. Right. Yeah, and, I don't know. And people put that on it. I mean, I'm not saying he sure. did any of that, but that's that's a critical reception. And there's a big divide, I think, between people who. You know, that's their gateway drug into Wallace is, you know, just reading the essays. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, or you read now even worse is just the graduation speech. Oh, well, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, our friend Josh is someone who, you know, is talking about the nonfiction not getting its due, Josh Royland. And that's something I can certainly agree with. That was definitely my first first contact with Wallace was the nonfiction. And that was like in real time in like the 90s. I was getting Harper's Magazine and Uh read those essays there and just had my mind blown by how great they were. (laughs) I remember my parents were going on a cruise right around them and I was started to recommend to them that article. And I was like, no, no, don't recommend to them that article. (laughs) Yes, yes. Don't want to spoil it for them. Exactly. The cruise (laughs) essay. Yeah. Well, I mean, go ahead and just keep going with that. Is that how you discovered Wallace was at Harper's? Yeah, definitely the those those nonfic the state. What was the what were the three that were in Harper's or, or were there more the state the state fair, fair state and fair. the also, cruise ship and then the the grammar piece. I mean, that's right. Those yeah. and love those so much. They're just like mm-hmm. out insanely great pieces of writing. Yeah. And then I remember the marketing campaign for Infinite Jest. I remember <laughs> being at Baxter's Books in downtown Minneapolis and seeing wow. those little postcards. Yeah. And being like, what the heck is this? And being interested and somehow I missed the hardcover. But then I, I was a young editor at Learner at the time and a fellow editor handed me the paperback, the awesome orange paperback oh, yeah. that oh, I yeah. wish I still had a copy of. I still and, have it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and she yeah. loaned it to me. And so I read this loaned copy and was blown away. I just loved it so much. I couldn't so believe how great it, it was. Like nothing I'd ever read, of course, as everyone says. And I remember just yeah. mourning it at the end. I read it all in my bed. I didn't take it anywhere out in the world because of how heavy it was. And <laughs> I was just so sad at the end that it was over. That's what I yeah, remember. Yeah, my sister just finished it a month ago. And she said, I feel like someone just died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like that sense of kind of loss of personhood is, you know, a really interesting way to describe. Yeah, you probably wouldn't say that about most books that you read, right? Right, right. You know, and like you, you become so invested in this cast of characters 
because yeah. the the universe is so well realized. Mm-hmm. And there's it's, so much minutia to it, right? Exactly, exactly. And I'd never had any exposure to AA, so I was really interested yes. in that world and mm-hmm. that was wonderful. Yeah. So where does kind of the intersection between reading this book and becoming interested in it as a, like a theological literary study happened for you, Joe? Sure. Yeah. So the the second time I read Infinite Jest was um Let's see. In like 2011, I was gearing up to quit smoking mm-hmm. and was gathering every resource I could get my hands on for that. <laughs> and one of the things was let's, let's I wanted to dig into the mechanics of addiction and mm-hmm. just really face the reality of what's the deal with addiction? What's happening here? And I, of course, just reading the rereading the book again was a great pleasure. But then also that was a piece of it, like really getting face to face with what's the deal? What am I doing with this addiction? Mm. And around the same time, I was um, doing some twelve step stuff. Not I'm not myself an addict, other than cigarettes at the time, but was doing some twelve step society things and was getting more and more interested in that theology. Mm. And thinking about higher power and what can a higher power mean. And I just really enjoyed wrestling with that, the mm-hmm. questions of a higher power, playing with what, what would make sense for that. It was, it was, I wasn't, I wasn't turned off by the re- quote unquote requirement of a higher power. Mm-hmm. I took them at face value that you could um, make that up on your own. You could make the higher power be what you wanted. And I was interested in that and um, started getting more interested in theism theology god theology and first very much interested in that the idea of a higher power is not me as the most valuable mm-hmm. insight in higher power theology the first thing you need to know is it's not you you're not in charge you don't control everything mm. well that seems like a relief to wallace and in, in, in or the narrator of the book right like the narrator of infinite jest i think is complex and there's a lot of theory stuff about who's really narrating certain parts of the book but I think in general, there's a lot of Wallace that shines through biographically. And I think that idea that, um, you know, your thesis, I remember, deals with a lot of stuff about uh, salvation or Mm -hmm. or this idea of solution, which is very, I'll say it's very interesting. Um, You know, I remember in in Maria Bustillos's uh, essay in Gesturing, Towards reality. Toward reality. Yep. The, she talks about the not me thing as she's talking about the development of um, Wallace's interest in Christian theology mm-hmm. and theology in general. I love that. That was such a validating essay for me. That was a big oh, awesome. point, in, right? In, yeah. in my in my uh, thesis development. And I'm, I wish I saw more reference to that essay. Oh, um, yeah. The idea that, you know, if a human is broken, right? And that how can a, a broken human fix themselves? Yes. Right. And right. there's to me was a lot of truth in that statement that you put into your thesis about hmm. this sort of there's an old solution, right? Like the old solution was, you know, this ancient idea of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like I got educated by updating, like, tell us what is the new, newer, like theological ideas, because I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know that stuff. Like I do. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about. But well, it's just about sal- sin and salvation. Maybe sure. just like even like give us some benchmarks. Like what is the sure. what are the terminology here of theology? Like even just saying theology, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what we're talking about. I mean, well, no, that's yeah. a really good point. What what do we mean by theology? And theology, I mean, 
theology, I've, I've seen definitions that it's faith-seeking understanding of itself. I think that's a good way to think of it. It's a little esoteric, wow. maybe. For, <laughs> I like it. Faith, yeah, that, that there's an element of something transcendent beyond ourselves, and theology is inquiry into that. Mm-hmm. And the sort of classical elements of what is a theology and the systematic theology, you know, this is me having gone to seminary and studied <laughs> theology there, and having to produce at the end of the at the end of my program a comprehensive systematic theology of my own, which oh, was wow. such a fun project. Mm. It so <laughs> was. It really was. Um, That's cool. the elements that they t- that we worked with there were a core conviction, a theology has to have a method. A notion of God, even if that's there is no God, God like, is not a thing. <laughs> twelve step. Yeah. Well, twelve step could or might might or might not have God. You know, we talked about this uh, earlier, where they could even say your higher power is a a a or right? a a chair or air. Uh, I remember playing uh, with air and breath as a nothing, higher power. Right. Oh yeah, sure. remember nothing? Satan yeah. in Infinite Jest? Sure, that's right. That's right. <laughs> His higher power is Satan for fuck's sure. sake. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, um, Glenn. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and a theology typically has a, a notion of creation. What is this? What is existence? And then a major one is what theologians often call anthropology, or what is your assessment or analysis of the human condition? Mm. What's the deal with us? What's our major problem? Why are the Why are we the way we are? Exactly. And in yeah. and in Christian con- conventional Christian theology, that's sin. The problem is sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the salvation. How do we overcome that? How do we go from brokenness to wholeness is another way of saying that. Sin, salvation, other other pairs of words can be, I think maybe this is what you're asking about, Matt, brokenness and wholeness. I hear much more yeah. in, my, in yeah. my denomination, which is Unitarian Universalism. Mm-hmm. And then most theologies also have an eschatology. What's the vision of the future? That's not just end, end days, end apocalypse, <laughs> revelation, but it's what's 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 what are we moving toward? What's the future? Sometimes that's afterlife. Some theologies don't address that. Right. And mine these days is a shrug emoji. Is my eschatology? <laughs> that's a good or one. Like, or the emoji of like the hand on chin looking uh, up <laughs> to the left corner of the room. Right. Can that can that qualify <laughs> as an eschatology, please? <laughs> I, I like that actually. I, I think it can. <laughs> I mean, like that. Yeah, there's a there's a certain level of like, okay, this topic, you know, theology is to some extent, like you said, esoteric, and there's got to be sort of as Wallace talks about to have like an absolute sort of kind of certainty when you're talking or thinking about some of these questions is like a, a really weird form of hubris, maybe, mm-hmm. and you know, there's there's got to be some kind of like embracing of of mystery to some extent when you're talking about things like this right you know like maybe i don't have every answer to all of these kinds of questions but i mean i think that using reason and experience and other things i I think i can answer some of them to some extent absolutely absolutely and the the theologians that i love the 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 20th century protestant liberal theologians like tillich paul Mm -hmm. tillich and the niebuhr brothers Reinhold Niebuhr and H. Richard Niebuhr, they, those guys are very much about reclaiming the idea of doubt and reason and bringing them into faith. 
they're it's kind of like a Kierkegaardian approach. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to reconcile religion and or rescue it, you might say, from modernity, <laughs> yeah. from sure, post enlightenment yeah. science, history, all the things. I mean, the writings on the wall for religion in the early 20th century, and especially with the world wars, mm -hmm. you know, there's been a decline in Protestant yeah. church membership since that time. Mm -hmm. So they're try they're looking to ways to respond to what they call the human situation. And that's one of the things I love about that Protestant liberal theology. Mm -hmm. they're, it's an answering theology. They're like not, a there's a practical application kind of here? There's that. There's, I learned this distinction between charismatic theology and apo apologetic theology. Charismatic is driven by a message, the gospel message. It's proclamation of the gospel message. And I think evangelicals tend more toward that. Mm -hmm. Karl Barth is oh, an example yeah. of that. And apologetic theology is, like I said, an answering theology that's responding to an ever-changing human situation. Mm -hmm. Tillich. P. Till, my guy. Mm -hmm. P. Till, he's, he's the main right. man of your, your he's my He's right. my federer of theology. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he developed what's called the correlation method, where he takes, he used existentialist philosophy to develop a question that's arising out of the human situation, and then working with adapting the Christian message to answer that question. So that was a that was a very new thing, and it was exciting in the fifties and sixties when he was putting that out. It was exciting to the liberal uh, lefty Protestants at the time. You know what's interesting to me about this is I feel like it doesn't jive with anything that I was taught growing up in the rural South, <laughs> and 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 really right, yeah. I don't feel like any of this has trickled down to the the what I would call the rural South of the United oh. States, and that the type of theology that still dominates is very different, you know, and it's right. very, uh, very yeah, old-fashioned, and, and UU in general, universal Unitarianism just doesn't even exist and for a lot of these communities. It, it does. We're just very small and very quiet. Right, and, and that just doesn't, it doesn't translate or... Right. Um, and, and, you know, but that, I think that that's a bad thing because I think that yeah. it should be, you know, th this more modern concept would resonate more with, like, people who are living this modern condition on Facebook and Pinterest and mm -hmm. living the rat race, you know, nine to five. Sure. And there is... I I think a more sophisticated theology, even of like 60 years ago, than most Christians in like, and I'm speaking for all of Texas here, sure. is like Texas well, is, sure. is aware of, and, and that's self-included, and that's people who are like church going, study the Bible, they just don't study theology. Mm. And I, to their but they're studying like popular culture, which is I think where Wallace like sure. meets them, and I think that's why Wallace has interested a lot of theological students. And there, you're getting right at the heart of what was behind my thesis. Like I went into seminary interested in the idea that what can enliven mo the modern church, and I'm talking about the modern liberal progressive church, that's that's what I am interested in, despite the fact that the right kind of won the public space in public discourse about religion. But what my, my idea and many people's idea is that it's secular art that can enliven the church mm. and can be so valuable. It basically is the church of most people, secular art and popular culture. Um, and and, like and Tillich was a Tillich was too. a great proponent of that. Tillich Tillich mm -hmm. developed a theology of art that broke down the secular sacred divide. Mm -hmm. For him, anything could be a bearer of the sacred. 
Right. And he this found, is very much, um, very much similar to Francis Schaeffer's notions of secular, sacred. Ah, yeah. I don't know that Schaefer guy. Francis no. Schaeffer. He founded yeah. the Labrie schools, hmm. um, which uh, there's one in Switzerland and there's like chapters all over the world. But um, my best friend, Nathan, went uh, to Labrie, Switzerland shortly after high school. And it's kind of like a like a work study program. So you go there for like six weeks or a couple months mm-hmm. and you like live on this kind of it's not quite a monastery, but it's got kind of a monastic vibe to it. It's like a kibbutz. Um, kinda, yeah. It's kinda kibbutzy. Mm-hmm. And uh you, you can just like study theology for several hours a day and you know, how that relates to things like culture, art, music, whatever. Uh and then you like you know, do some like manual labor around the property to earn your keep and stuff like that. And and you get like a kind of like a tutor who knows some things about the subjects that you're interested in. Um, and so he has a book called Escape from Reason that very much outlines like uh, the way that he sees the church's understanding of like what is secular and what is sacred since huh. basically Aquinas. And he shows how Aquinas like divided the earth and all, all of, you know, creation into these two orders of secular and sacred hmm. and how that, that was really like a, a huge mistake. Uh, and that's like a, a, like a theological error. You know, if, if you look at scripture, that's sort yeah. of Schaefer's argument. So he seeks sure. to bring those two things back into the same story, the secular and the sacred. Sure. So yeah. No dis- can't make a distinction between those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus himself is constantly telling stories in the new Testament that have nothing to do with God that are about just people and objects and stuff in the world. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Tillich's, Tillich's theology of art, um, he saw art as one of the main, one of the best ways we come to understand the world. It, that art was what could indicate the character of the spiritual situation in human life. Mm-hmm. He developed this theology of symbols that I love, that there's four aspects to this, the symbol, an artistic symbol, you know, in, in an art, an artist takes the elements of reality and creates something that points to beyond reality to what he calls ultimate reality or the depth dimension mm. that art art can allow a sacramental experience of the mm. holy art can be a conduit to that mm-hmm. and so the symbols theory he's he's talking about a symbol points beyond itself to something else the symbol participates in the meaning and power of what it symbolizes think of a flag doing mm-hmm. that yep. and the symbol has the power to reveal the meaning of something which cannot be approached in any other way He's talking about like the a Van Gogh painting of a tree. Right. It's not data about a tree. It's it's revealing something about the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. And finally, the symbol has the power to open up the viewer, the soul, for what is revealed to it. He says uh, symbols are double-edged. They both open up the viewer or reader, in the case mm-hmm. of a novel, and reveal something to that mm-hmm. reader. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. And so that's what I was applying to Infinite Jest in my right, thesis. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And talking about how it, it, Infinite Jest can, when you engage with it, and it can, you can see it as creating symbolic windows into the theological realities of sin and salvation in various mm-hmm. ways. So that's what I explored in there. And, you know, what I'm really interested there, maybe this is not appropriate but how does how does that trickle how does that trickle down like 
to other, you know, bits of Protestantism? Like, how do we get that, you know, even those ideas to, like, crack the veneer of the ideas of sin and salvation, which I feel like are really ancient, you know, know, that dominate, like, U.S. Christianity? Yeah, most churches are really invested in uh, a traditional reading of sin and salvation. I think a lot of liberal religion is doing some interesting things, bringing literature in, mm-hmm. you know, Mary Oliver, Naomi Shihab Nye, Rumi, they they make their way into that, the, that kind of literature makes its way into church services, for sure, Unitarian Universalism, where mm-hmm. the Bible is a, one of many, many sources. But I think other Protestant denominations bring it in, too. Even the Catholics let in some rock songs once in a while, right? <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, I the think guitar Unita- shows up, right? The that's right, that's right. Up. The Uni- Unitarian Universalism, my little denomination, is uniquely interested in multiple sources uh-huh. and committed to all kinds of sources. Uh-huh. But but I still started my thesis in the idea that it needs to do more to, and a, a, specifically I started with a problem in Unitarian Universalism, because in theology, there's a, a in academic theology, there's a, a big burden on why does this matter? Right. You know, and a theo- if you're going to make a theological argument, you need to tie it out to how does this make a difference in theology as it's lived. And so the problem I addressed was that Unitarian Universalism has kind of tossed out the ideas of sin and salvation for the most part. You, I actually yes. cited a, a brochure that says, we believe people are basically good and yes, everybody's right. already saved. We don't talk about heaven and hell and evil. We don't talk about that. It's a big bummer. <laughs> And and for me, that's an impoverished a really notion. Really te- technical theology, right there. <laughs> that's right. That's a, it's a very impoverished notion of what what human life is. Everybody right. has an experience of brokenness. I take that to be a universal thing that we're all on some spectrum of brokenness mm-hmm. and in search of wholeness in some way. And so my argu- my core argument of my thesis was that Infinite Jest is an example of an artwork that offers to Unitarian Universalism a much-needed resource for reimagining the concepts of sin and salvation by looking at the novel in conversation with Tillich's Theology of Sin and Salvation, which I also think are very enriching. And by using Tillich's Theology of Art, we can see how this novel, through its form, subject matter, and style, creates these symbols of sin and salvation that can help us think about a different way to talk about sin and salvation. Mm-hmm. So Tillich talks about, it, you write this new thesis, that Tillich talks about how he thought that Pablo Picasso's painting Guernica is like the most spiritual, theologically gravid piece of work that he can mm-hmm. think of, or something to that extent, right? Yeah, I think he called it the greatest Protestant work of art, the most successful Protestant work of right. art. Right, and so you're kind of left with the question of like, well, why is that? Why? It's like, I mean, right. it's a painting about a city getting bombed during like um, the Spanish Civil War, right? And, and about like the mm-hmm. pain and the agony and the absurdity of what that is. Right. But, and so Tillich, I think his point is that the, the f- sort of the fallenness or the, the abjectness of that historical moment is enriched with theological meaning because it shows what it uh, like an aspect of what it means to be human and to suffer right. to live in like the tension of a fallen world perhaps right. um so if we sort of apply that to infinite jest what are some of the main things you talk about in your thesis about here are those those moments those markers 
that that invigorate a sense of sin and salvation. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So that's that's the meat of the thesis. Yeah, I love that. I love that stuff about Guernica. He taught yeah, that it was a human situation laid bare, mm-hmm. and I can just imagine him walking through the elements of that painting, mm-hmm. the way the particular style it has of of exposing madness and all yeah. human proper relations just gone wrong it's mm-hmm. so intense well it's like yeah. what is hell you know <clears throat> yeah is it is it hell on earth is it yeah. you know yeah. you know that that to me is a big issue we'll come back to keep, keep going sure. Guernica. And none of none of these uh none of these theologians we're talking about are interested in hell i can tell you that well that's a that's a tillichian thing but that's like, a- says that it's not that the preoccupation of modern theology should not be death and an afterlife it should be the modern problem is meaninglessness despair and anxiety, and that anxiety in the Kierkegaardian sense. Right. Well, and, and to me, that goes back to this question I just mentioned about, like, why can't that translate into Dallas? And, you know, <laughs> why can't we get that into the these TV big... show? These or? big... No, mega churches, <laughs> right? And that if they, they were... Are. If they were not so... Fo- Dude, I'm dead serious here. If it was not <laughs> focused on um, this idea of hell and the afterlife, mm-hmm. you know, would they be able to pack 10,000 people into a megachurch? And and I'm I'm totally serious about this. I think that it happened um, in the early 2000s. There was a case in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of this guy Carlton Pearson, who was featured on yes. This American Life, and he yeah, ba- he's now a Unitarian Universalist. He's a Unitarian now. He basically <laughs> yes. he said, you know what? I don't really believe in hell anymore. And there's universal reconciliation. And this is really advanced theological idea that you know. Everyone who is sinful eventually will be reconciled with mm-hmm. with the idea of God, and that is is you know a child who is born and then dies two days later are they going to go to hell because they didn't? I mean, he he really confronted a lot of deep issues, and that hasn't really trickled down. That's been like I don't know fifteen years. Like yeah, are we making any progress, Jill? Like to me, these are very vital issues that you're writing about. I don't know what to tell you, Matt. I mean, here's one thing I would say is that a lot of this bad theology you're talking about, I think it's not a shocker to say to you that it's not actually about theology and religion at all. It's actually about politics. And if and if that hasn't been made clear in the <laughs> no. last year or so, you know point, what I mean? Point taken. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. correct. You're correct. Truly. It's about I politics think- and sociology and, and- yeah, yeah. desire to control certain things that are feared and hated. I mean, at the end of the day, some of what we thought was right-wing theology turns out to be a case for tax cuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell, man? <laughs> yeah. And so, so in a way, I don't know that this is actually a conflict with theology. Right. That's very... Does that very, help? No, that's super... <laughs> or that's just super it's extra sad. Point. Well, I mean, it's sad, but it's super, like... Erudite, just of how like conflated, at least in my world, these things have become. Mm. It's like almost inseparable in some ways. You know, I said it's politics, but I want to clarify this a little bit. This bad theology stuff you're talking about, Matt, is still religion in the sense that Wallace and Tillich and the Niebuhrs talked about it. It's being expressed in political and personal arenas. But I think we can look at people pursuing an agenda of any kind and ask, what is being worshipped here? What is the thing that people are giving their loyalty to and deriving value from? Is it a flourishing human community? 
Or is it perhaps about other things being worshipped, such as shareholder value? In the Wallace sense, that's still worshipping. Or as Tillich would put it, that's still faith. And this makes me think of a, sh- of a book from last year by David Dark. It's called uh, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. I don't know if you saw it. He's doing a similar thing as Wallace, redefining religion to help us be more aware of and intentional about how we're organizing our lives. I'd love to share just a quick quote from that book. David Dark writes, Show me your receipts, your text messages, your gas mileage, your online history, a record of your daily doings, and, just to get things started, a transcript of the words you've spoken aloud in the course of a single day. And then we might begin to get a picture of your religious commitments. The space of your worship is the space of your life, end quote. I think my, my point is I'm trying to make is that everyone has a religion of some kind, whether they're telling the truth about it or masking it with misleading language about a different kind of religion. And I think that's why a lot of, to me, a lot of smart people in around 2010 or so, 2008, started writing about Wallace in theology. Mm. And that he was very interested in a lot of these subjects and, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that's in the Pale King about abortion. That's mm-hmm. about, That's right. um, you know, higher powers going from. You got to remember when Infinite Jest, when he turned it in, he had really only been in AA for about four years. Gosh, that's right. And so for him, there was, I think, this idea, something related to salvation or a better way to live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I talk about in my thesis is salvation as an existential process whoa that's wow yeah, that's that's cool like <laughs> tell us more please yes now dave you were asking about sin do you, do you want me to start with sin and estrangement um, yes yeah i mean yeah i think estrangement is kind of like uh, a big element of what tillich is talking about right like the yeah. idea of sin is kind of a of, as like alienation yeah, exactly. That's another way to say it. Yeah. So for Tillich, the the short version of his God doctrine is that God is the ground of being. God is being itself. Mm-hmm. He is he is infinite ultimate reality that we as human beings are able to imagine, but we also know that we are excluded from it because we are finite. Mm. Okay. So one way he talks about human beings is that we are finite freedom embodied. So we have this ability to to understand, to ask questions about infinity. He talks about the the, the idea of ontological shock, this feeling mm-hmm. like most people have as children when you sort of have this question of like, <laughs> wait, why is there exist. anything? Why is there anything at all? What? Yeah. Or that question kids ask like, where was I before I was born? Right. They, they, yes. they can't process yes. like a, a you know, like a pre-beginning to their What do you ex- mean kids? I'm talking me. Well, well that's <laughs> too, sure, of course. <laughs> but like the first moment they have that question where they realize, right. you know, like right. that's a really interesting moment, I think. And then, right. of course, it haunts us for the rest of our lives. Right. So this ground of being theology, which is which for me is the most appealing God theology. That's where that's where I land. God is the ground of being. God is not a being. This is also part of the project of trying to res- rescue theology from modernity. That atheism, he makes the case, he and other Protestant theologians, and Wallace make the case that there is no such thing as atheism. In Tillich's case, it's because God is not a being. God is, in fact, being itself. So is Tillich, it sounds a little bit like maybe almost pantheistic versus like monotheistic? Sure, some people say that. Yep, exactly. 
or okay. religious naturalism people refer yeah. to. I didn't study a lot of that, but yes, I know that that often. Okay. And then I pair it with Sally McFaig's theology, which is embodiment theology. Her thing is that the universe is God and God's body. Mm, that's like panentheism. Yes, exactly. That, that really, okay. Yeah. And so, and what I love about that is she uses this common creation story, the Big Bang, as the the main story of creation. That creation, God, God embodied is in creation is both radically unified and radically diversified. Which I just love that thought. You know, we all come from the same place, but the insane diversity of creation is also this amazing fact. Hmm. So those two together, that's that's where I kind of land in God theology. Mm-hmm. To say God with a straight face, Dave. <laughs> yeah, that's that's me. It, right? Yes, <laughs> we're a small bunch. It took me a while to stop apologizing <laughs> for going to church. <laughs> but anyway, so with that God theology for Tillich, this 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 idea of the ground of being. We belong to this infinite thing, but we are also, the conditions of existence are such that we are separated from it or estranged from it. Right, yeah. yeah so, Infinite as, Jest does a particularly good job of demonstrating this. Right, right, <laughs> right. He talks about human beings as we exist are not what we are essentially, what we ought to be. Mm. It's not that we're separated from our essence and no longer have any connection to it. It's not just a psychological condition. Estrangement is, he says, an inescapable spiritual reality. We're estranged from God, ourself, and others. Mm-hmm. That's a, that seems like a very orthodox Christian idea to me. Sure, sure. And he, yeah. he does goes along in volume two of the systematic theology, should you be inclined. <laughs> he does a long analysis of how, yes, it's it's different from traditional theology about sin but it's also has a lot in common he wants to keep the word sin too because that involves the personal element of yes there's destiny involved this is a part of existence but also we make the choice to turn away from god Mm -hmm. and there's still personal responsibility right so he's in line with kind of like an arminian view of the universe and of human uh human nature and human responsibility remind me what that means so that's that's like um Jacobus Arminianus, like he was around the time of the, the Protestant Reformation and Calvinism kind of sprung out like the the five um, tenets of Calvinism, the tulip, like rose That's as a right. response to Arminius. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially his view is that like humans have free will, they can exercise it to engage with God or to reject a relationship with God. Um you know, basically every every point that Calvinism makes, there's a counterpoint in mm. in Arminianism. Uh, so it just puts more emphasis on like human human mm-hmm. agency and autonomy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can barely follow this when it gets <laughs> relates to walls. <laughs> uh, we yeah, can so, edit some of this so out. In, no, no, no. Maybe no, should, let, me is, just, I'll let me get to let me get to infinite jest, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean that's interesting because infinite jest to me is the one of his works that does have some bit of like salvation and reconciliation in it. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, to me, that was I remember when Oblivion came out and talking with people about how there's not really a way out of that book. Right. It's really bleak. Mm -hmm. And the thing, the same thing with the Pale King. Right. And that taxes and boredom and stuff, it just doesn't resonate the way that that Infinite Jest did. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. They are very different. Infinite Jest in all these stories of estrangement. I mean, I think out of our own. Everyone knows what that's like to be 
messed up in some way to use a crude shorthand for it. I think, yeah, the pale King follows more of a straight up narrative, right? That's, that's less involving in these things. I don't know if that's what you're talking about in the, the grand scope. I think to me, that's one of the arguments I make is that in the scope of depictions of estrangement, infinite jest makes a statement about it. It's, you know, it could have been a 300 page novel about Hal. Right. But instead, it's this like vast depiction of a great uh, sweeping cast of characters uh-huh. and these issues. I think that's one thing about it that contributes to it being an effective symbolic window of estrangement. Uh-huh. Some of the other things I think, you know, a lot of it is Wallace's own insights written into the characters. The the passage about we are all dying to give our lives away. There's a lot of things he writes into the characters that he writes elsewhere that match up with the, the Kenyan speech. Yeah. Um, Marat is kind of a moral yes, piece. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, the Marat's deeply conversation is yeah. very much a, a, a expression of the problem of, again, and this matches up with the, the Protestant, the liberal Protestants, everybody worships something. Mm. Everyone has faith. Faith is not something that some people engage in, other people don't. But well, that that's a good question right there. Then, like, what is Gately, right? So, what is he, and that why? What would motivate him to give up a life of crime and easy high, and to say he's going to go straight? Well, the easy high becomes very, very, very much not easy. It's bleak, right? It's <laughs> that, bleak. Right? Yeah, and that's always the po- the deal with addiction, whether it's a, a nasty hitting bottom or a minor hitting bottom. That, that doesn't look so dramatic. There's a moment of clarity or a dark night of the soul, to use various uh-huh. phrases, to like right. dark, dark night of the soul, in right, which yeah. grace strikes. Have you? There's that great sermon of his called You Are Accepted. Hmm. You, ever read you that? mentioned that in your thesis, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've actually read the sermon, though. Yeah, that's, that's hmm. lovely. Hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, other elements of, I think Hal is obviously the greatest depiction of estrangement. He has no connection to... Others, he has no truly intimate relationships. You know, there's that terrifically sad passage about Hal hasn't had a bona fide intensity of interior life type emotion since he was tiny. Mm -hmm. In fact, inside Hal, there's nothing at all. And that's that's one of several passages that this like, can you picture the passage I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So sad, and Mm -hmm. and it's this layer after layer of this sadness, and it builds, and then it ends with this terrifically simple statement: "He is lonely." lonely. Yeah. And that that is something I would love to look at. There's several passages that do that. They build, build, build with this glorious symphony of detail and nuance and end with this very simple statement. Well, like the, well, there's one in the that I would connect with salvation, the when the old guys it's a, it's one of the AA passages when the old guys Crocodiles. say what? how yeah, when they say to jump, you say how high and they've got you and you're yes, free. Yes, and you're free. That, and yeah. You're free, you know. We could talk about that for a long time too. But there's yeah. a, several passages that I think that says a lot about his view of spirituality and, and recovery. The you uh-huh. can play around with all kinds of thoughts and stories and but at the end of the day, you're free or you're lonely. Uh-huh. Things come down to something very simple. No, I would love to read a thesis where someone argues that is the crescendo of the novel, you know? Like yeah, that, that's, that, I've been thinking about that uh, a lot lately, yeah. Uh, and uh, and I also think that, you know, Franzen tried to write a response about freedom based on, partly on infinite jest and um, 
the Kenyan speech about freedom, real freedom, you know, mm-hmm. and and what that res- you know his response to that is the novel freedom, and he mm-hmm. talks about that in some interviews and stuff. But sure. I don't want to bring up Franzen any more than that. <laughs> um, but just to say, uh-huh. like, who was that? Who are you talking uh, about? <laughs> back to organized religion and, uh, in Texas and and how that works, right? But uh, you know, I I think that this is something that Wallace was very aware of, like even in the Kenyan speech, right, which has probably his biggest audience. He's, he's very conscious of saying, um, this isn't some sermon, right? This isn't Dr. Laura. I'm not preaching to you. This is, even though he tells like a parable about atheism, you know, like the Eskimo story. Yeah. Yeah. Like several times, like talks about atheism talks about suicide and talks about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really deep, shit that you don't hear at a graduation speech mm-hmm. usually um mm-hmm. he's very conscious of this like positioning of his beliefs and to me that that is a very key part of like what contemporary theology is doing um even now so i'm i'm, I'm really interested in hearing you say more about what you said you know at the beginning of the podcast about um contemporary art oh, and if there. are if there are other sort of avenues, we've been really focused up for obvious reasons on infinite just and Wallace here, <laughs> but like if there are some other avenues where you think these things are being played out particularly well, like share them with us, please. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I am, I'm a Tilaki and I would see sacredness in most art, most great art. Oh, wow. Or a lot of it. And we could pick anything and talk about it. I mean, I guess we talked about Picasso a minute ago. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Let me say a little bit. I, there's one other thing I wanted to say about that. One of those passages where Hal, about Hal as a symbol of estrangement. Yeah. Or forming a symbolic uh, window about estrangement. There's that passage about where he and Mario are talking. And he's talking about the way more than Hal-sized hole. I know, Dave, you do a lot with this in yeah. your thesis. and. Mm-hmm. And it's another one of those that builds, builds, builds with this conversation. Is that the one, I think, where he says God has the kind of laid-back management style he's not crazy about? Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah I, that's one of my that's favorite so lines great. in the book. So that's like a, a very, he's obviously estranged from God, not connecting with anything God-like. He also talks about fearing that he's going to fly apart in that section. Right, and right. I just have to notice that is that is of such a familiar feeling to me for, during the time I quit smoking, which was when I really leaned into God theology and did the, the the twelve step surrender thing. I remember the first day without cigarettes, I kept looking down at myself, and I couldn't figure out why until like later in the day I realized I was surprised that all my limbs were still attached. <laughs> like I, wow, I, I couldn't picture holding together as a human without wow. cigarettes. That's amazing. Well, that that's a lot to do with like this the tennis stuff, right? Where your your body just becomes second mm-hmm. nature, and mm. you, you don't think about your body's actions. And I also think that relates somewhat to Hal's thesis about the hero of inaction, right? Because right. the idea of quitting smoking is just doing nothing, mm. right? Like, <laughs> or the idea of quitting drinking is just like you just mm. sit in a room and read, and that's a success. Stop. 
It's like right. you're just sitting in a room and talking with other people, and that's winning. But it's, it's like, not. It's, it's not. suffering. Like for it's me, the key was suffering. accepting suffering. It's like, well, this is not going to feel good, and I'm going to do it anyway. But that's the tennis piece, which is shtit, right? Uh, saying, sure. You have to uh, suffer in order to even exist at the tennis academy. <laughs> that's right. You're going to do these drills, and you're going to hate the people who are telling you to do them. That's right. <laughs> um, so that, that sort of heroism is like, what is the hero? Is it totally like catatonic, right? Or is it right. like just <laughs> just calm, right? Like right, you just right. made peace with it. Like you're just divorced from uh, reality or whatever the modern condition is, you know? Like, right, right. That, I'm, and I'm, I'm entranced with that idea of like, people who complain a, a lot of like we're depressed or we're miserable. It's like a lot of that is just the modern condition of right. the rat race, man. Like this is the life. There's right. no escaping it. Yeah. We're trained to believe that suffering is a hundred percent unacceptable. You have to stop it right. and run away from it in any way you can. Same with boredom. I mean, that's so much of a Wallace idea The you've got to walk through boredom and stick right. with it. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because um, it it still feels as relevant, you know, mm. as as when that book came out. And I'm talking about Infinite Jest 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. And I I don't know what that says about you know American culture or what it says about me, but. It still feels like that's where we're at, you know. For sure, more than ever, more right? More than ever. I mean, yeah. That has to be right. Put down the Twitter. Put it down. Stare at the wall oh, for a second. God. I deleted the Twitter <laughs> app, but you know, I've just been checking oh, it on you? the mobile browser now, and it's it's like I'm forcing myself to have the crappier experience. <laughs> that's good. That's a good I'm way like, to start. I can't. <laughs> it's like when we had Edmund Waldstein on the show, and he was talking about. You know, he's he's cistercian a cistercian monk. monk. And so, like, part of their theology is that, like, you actually encounter the divine through pain and boredom mm. and, like, like intentionally being uncomfortable. Wow. And, you know, that's, like, so far from our culture's, like, position on the matter, right? Right. It's a 180 <laughs> from what we're taught to think is successful uh, in life. Yeah, yeah. comfortable. Comfortable. I, that, I did a um, sermon once about... That in, right, which I, right. in which I used a Wallace, Wallace mm-hmm. reading. Of course, it was Wallace 101 for a church congregation, so I did use the Kenyan speech. Forgive me, Wallace. Fans. It's still good. It's still good. Uh, right? I, it is still I did good. the same thing. It is still good. But yeah, what I, I talked about was well, called What is Beauty For? And I think this is, I have this overall project of trying to bring Wallace into religion, clearly. I'm trying to do it in a sermon and a thesis. And um, what was I talking about? Oh, one of the when I was talking about the difficulty of choosing what to worship, that was the first part of the of the sermon. And I, my kind of personal story was what I realized that I'm not paying attention, and when I'm not paying attention, what I worship is safety, absence of risk. Mm. That was kind of my realization, like ten, fifteen years ago. Like, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's not how I want to live. Worshipping the idea of safety and security, you know, comfort, that notion yeah, of oh, that totally. that's what we're supposed to be, as comfortable and safe as possible. But is that really the way we want to live? And then then I talked about how beauty is a way of point that I often pay attention to beauty as a way to point me toward what I really do want to care about and worship. And so the power of beauty to do that. And there's, of course, a, a history and theology of beauty as a way to pull us toward the holy and what's right. Mm-hmm. 
I like that. I'm not talking about aesthetic, you know, just beauty, you know, a pretty picture, but beauty in this larger (laughs) sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I like that a lot because I feel like I'm the annoying guy who's able to relate everything back to infinite jest. Sure. And, and aren't the, we all? There's a, right. Yes. No, I mean it's really not cool. Like it's not cool. <laughs> not but cool. but I will say like there to me there's a lot still that's relevant about like are you Hal or are you Gately? Mm-hmm. And yeah. there there is this you know we're talking about the modern condition is sort of depression and you know at least I think it is a certain sort of death in life right where depression is contemplating death and there's you know, pushing you. There's a lot of that in the novel, right? And it's cl- I think of Clipperton, right, with holding the gun yeah. to his head of like, uh-huh. I'm going to do this, but it's going to be at the expense of torture, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, that that sort of difference of like, what are you pushing at? Who is more comfortable? Like, Hal has got a very comfortable life, right? His, mm-hmm. his family takes care of him, right? He's He's got nothing to prove. He's successful. He's smart. He doesn't have to study, right? He's got all yep. of these things going for him, and yet he's miserable. Right. And, Gately- and that's, that, that's very much what Wallace Tuss said he wanted to write a novel about, right? In some right. of those interviews that I wanted, all my friends were so sad. I wanted to figure out more about why that was. But that's and not I- the interesting part to me. The interesting part uh-huh. is, is Gately, right? Ah, uh, yes. Is Gately, to, at least now, and you know, I'm in my late 20s. And, um, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> no, sure. <laughs> just go with that. All right. He, um, he's trying to be a more responsible adult, right? And, mm-hmm. and with no one pushing him, his parents are not there at the tennis academy and he's not wealthy That's and right. he's got nothing to prove per se, except to himself. Right. And, and he really wants to be, um, a better person or he has to be in order to survive, right? Cause he's tried yeah, of living this other way. And it's it's a survival thing, and it's there's a lot, I think that it's still I still come back to in that. So I'm right. I'm very interested in that as you know a type of of salvation, just like we need salvation in every day. Right, and he it's he takes it. He makes the move himself to surrender to the reality that he doesn't know what to do to get on his knees, even though he doesn't believe anything. Mm. He makes that choice. That's how he gets there. Hal's not doing that. He has these little glimmers, but the he's choice frozen. is He's there. frozen, right? Yeah, and yeah. And that's that's not a that's not a judging or a blaming. It's simply a what is. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what that's exactly how I describe the ex- salvation as existential process. It involves grace. Faith is not the same as belief. Faith is an act of the whole person in which the rational and non-rational are united. Mm-hmm. Gately, that's good. Um, in, in depicting Gately, Wallace creates this contemporary symbol of salvation. I'm quoting from my thesis, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> the good. Symbol, of sal- symbol of salvation that lies not in belief or doctrine, but in choosing a faith grounded in practice, in the power of story and empathy, in community, and in acceptance of grace. In this faith, we cease to give ourselves away to finite concerns in our state of estrangement. We instead find salvation or wholeness in acceptance and connection to a higher power. That's a salvation that rings true for me. Hmm. See, and that, to me, that is some written by someone who has been through some shit. Right. <laughs> and, and, yeah. I, I, and I'm talking about Wallace mostly, but like uh, maybe YouTube, right? But it's like, you don't come at that angle from just naivete, right? Like you're coming at this angle from, you know, some, 
experience, right? And to me, that's more valuable as you get older and become an adult and you're like, what do we want to be? What is life? Mm-hmm. That's and, exactly right. And you're questioning these ideas. Like to me, that is super valuable to hear from other people who have said, and I think that's kind of what made Wallace want to write a novel about AA mm-hmm. is that the, he sees some, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's some insight in there, he's going to write it down. And there's a lot of like, it sounds like a banal platitude, right? But that's that's what his whole like graduation speech was, right? It was like right. banal platitudes, right? But right. he's not, he's really trying to say, you know, when he's talking about these big things, the only way to do it is like kind of plain spoken. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can't really be um, as sophisticated as you want. I, I think that's really great, Jill. Like, right, I, that faith, and yeah, we there's so much in the novel about how smartness, knowing something isn't going to do it. That's mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a lot of characters, Wallace's, right? Yeah, Wallace also says that like there's something about faith or theology or God that's inarticulable. Which mm-hmm. is to say that, like, you know, you can have a, a systematic theology and, mm-hmm. and classify all of these ways that, uh, you know, God is defined or how God operates according to various texts. But there's something also, like, existential mm-hmm. about these questions that is really hard to communicate. Right. And maybe is, like, in the finiteness of language is impossible to communicate on some level. Right, well. right, right. Tillich said there's only one literal thing we can say about God, and that's God is being itself or the power of being. The rest of it is symbols. The rest of the only way we can talk about God is through symbols. Yeah, for mm. t- just just like for Tillich, Wallace's salvation, is it's not about intellectual assent to doctrine. There's not a, a moment yeah. of saying, yes, I believe this and now I'm saved. So for yeah. me, this also connects to Unitarian Universalism, which is so much of why I see this depiction of salvation resonating within my little denomination, that it's not about apprehending an insight or taking in some information. It's mm. about, with the whole person, surrendering to reality and taking that leap of faith, accepting the grace that's there. That's good. <laughs> tell, tell us, Jill, like, what, what have we... Um skipped over was there something in your in your notes and something you had written down today that we had not talked about this is oh. our this is our final thoughts uh, do you want to read from that prose poem like do you still sure have sure we, do, we could end book. with that is there anything else to, that we didn't talk about i kind of wanted to talk about mario because oh, okay. your oh, thesis right. dave because I, I, I think i said to dave one time that i think Dave's thesis should have been called "We Need to Talk About Mario People" because yeah. <laughs> no one ever talks about Mario. Oh, yeah, no, that's a good point. It's not something I've worked on in my thesis, but I love that you oh, did yeah. first, Dave. Yeah. So yeah, my talk last year at, at the conference was entirely from my Mario chapter from my thesis. Um, because yeah, I mean, he doesn't get quite as much airtime as Hal or Gately, but I think he is a really important character in this conversation. Totally. To be sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that he's on the scale of salvation models, right? Yeah, yeah. So in my thesis, I I kind of talk about uh, how Gately and Mario articulating or representing sort of like s- different stations of salvation, maybe, to use kind of a Catholic idea, mm. sal- stations of the cross. Um, but, you know, like how how obviously is alienated and detached Gately has formerly been those things, but now through uh, sort of a, a grace community is coming into a sense of wholeness. 
And then Mario just seems to to embody that in and of himself. Um, and he also kind of like extends grace to lots of other characters throughout the book, namely like Barry Loach and even like Eric Clipperton. Um, so Mario seems to be on like a different spiritual plane of existence than I'd say almost every other character in the novel. Mm. Um, do you, do you talk much about him in your thesis? Jill? I, I, know didn't. I know, I know he's in there a little bit. Like I didn't name, at all because it, there, because like, kind of oh, for it, the he's, same he's reasons. You're at all. Not really. I mean, only in passing when I'm talking about Hal, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think because he he isn't someone you can say is experiencing estrangement in the classic way. And that's what you're interested in about him. Yeah. And so he he didn't fit into my, the argument I was trying to make. I mean, he's been burned, right? So he's, (laughs) Wallace Mm -hmm. says like the people who have been burned, to me, this reminds me a little bit going back to our, our thing about Federer. Right, and that people who who've been injured in some way, mm-hmm. they either rise above it or they totally succumb to it. Mm. And and he's saying Mario is really kind of oblivious to that, you know. And Mario is so innocent. It's sort of, you know, it's almost cooler for me to say this is like a Buddhist character or this is like <laughs> a Buddhist thing. Like uh-huh. and maybe that's a very like PR thing rather than you know saying oh this is a Christian. He's a great Christian writer. And um, honestly, I, I got some of that from the writer Michael O'Connell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and he made it very clear to me that Wallace is still dealing with like kind of Christian existentialism mm-hmm. with with Mario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I I still think it's fascinating to think about why Wallace wrote that character in there. Right. Like what what purpose yeah. is he serving in there? Yeah. Right. Hmm. I would love to see more from you, Dave, on the Mario character. I think that is such an interesting hmm. point of investigation. Okay, well, I thank you. I, I appreciate that note, uh, duly recorded. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's weird to not be technically in school anymore, right? Like, right. I don't have to produce academic writing. Same. I mean, I could because of like the conference and stuff, but the thought of doing so, if I'm not getting fulfilling some kind of like credit type thing is feels very hard to me yes and you know maybe that like in the context of what we've been talking about maybe that's good maybe i need to put myself in that situation again or it's uncomfortable and like yeah. i have to countenance these Who knows? important things um something yeah. i'm interested in working on is um the idea of contextualizing wallace's theological thinking in mm. the, the the 21st century or 20th century liberal protestant theologians i was talking about mm. mm-hmm I think you and I could work on that together, Dave. Yeah, that sounds like a good, Share the burden. good, pro, good co-project. Because um, he sits right in there with them. There's so much, yeah, so much overlap. And I don't know to the extent to which it's influence, what he, you know, how much he knew about those guys. I remember Denny Kinlaw telling me at the 2014 conference, mm-hmm. or maybe it was 2015, that there was a Tillich book in the archive in Wallace's oh, yeah? collection. Wallace's, oh, cool. Yeah. What's in there? I would love to see. I haven't yeah. had a chance to get there, but I would love to see what's in yeah, that book. I'm going there in like two days, so I'm going to go look it out. I'll Check look it out. out. See if there's see if you can find Petel in there. I will. I will. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of like C.S. Lewis influence in in Wallace as well, too. Mm-hmm. Like Wallace talks about screw tape letters being one of the, like one of the most profound books he's ever read. Right, right. And uh, you know, I have not been able to make my way through that book yeah, yet. You know what? I'm not interested in it. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so good, you guys. You got to yeah. try, try again. It's really. I will tough. try again. <laughs> not interested right now <laughs> that's cool that's cool I, I mean he also writes about he 
or he told Zadie Smith about Brian Moore's Catholics. Yes, Catholics. Yeah, that's right. I'm that's a great. Book. Not able to work my way through it. I'll have to pick no. it up again. But. Oh yeah, it's pretty short too. Like it's only 150 pages or something. It's quite brief. But yeah, it, it kind of like imagines a uh, a marriage between Roman Catholicism and Buddhism in like a mm. future, in an imagined future, where mm. the Catholic Church has like you know had a, another Vatican Council and they. Start to like wed uh, Orthodox Christianity with tenets of of Buddhist faith. It's quite interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll have Do to get Michael Paul- O'Connell onto our project as well. For sure, that's right. <laughs> we'll Do you guys in. know Paul Eli's book, "The Life ah. You Save May Be Your Own"? I think it's called. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. I've never read it. Don't know it. Don't know. Not it. sure if I'm saying his name correctly. Mm-hmm. It's a story of four modern American Catholics who mm-hmm. were made literature out of their search for God, according to the Amazon tagline. <laughs> um, it covers Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day and Walker Percy. Oh, yeah. And I never, I got through some of it, but not all of it in reading for my thesis. I got really interested in these kind of looks at literature and religion. It's a Flannery O'Connor story, right? Yeah. The life you save may be your own. That's right. That's yeah. right. It's borrowed from that. Yeah. yeah. And I remember here, I was on a plane listening to On Being, the podcast, and there was, she did an interview with him, and he talked about how this overlap between Christianity and the novel both yeah. put an ordinary human life at the center. Mm. And I thought that was an interesting insight. Like, mm. um, the novel brings ordinary human life onto center stage in culture for the first time. That that's a, that's a center for looking for meaning. Mm-hmm. And that Christianity did the same thing by putting a, um, a life at the center of the story. Mm-hmm. I.e. Jesus. Nazareth. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, sorry to, to name JC <laughs> as that life. Yeah. No apologies needed. No. Hmm. All right. You, you ready to read that passage? I want to sure. hear it. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm ready. Right. Dave, are you ready? You ready? I'm ready. Oh yeah, I'm so ready. Jill, any anything <laughs> okay. else? I mean, I feel like I could ask you a lot more questions, even going back to this these ideas that you wrote about in your thesis about yeah. like salvation, because I feel like I still don't have a great idea of it, but I feel like that's my fault, not yours. So. <laughs> Another time. Yeah. All right, ready? I'm yeah. ready. Let's do it. Past the flannel plains and blacktop graphs and skylines of canted rust, and past the tobacco brown river, overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water down river, to the place beyond the windbreak, where untilled fields simmer shrilly in the AM heat, shatter cane, lamb's quarter, cut grass, sawbriar, nutgrass, jimson weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtain, muscadine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping charlie, butterprint, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butchergrass, invaginate volunteer beans, all heads gently nodding in a morning breeze like a mother's soft hand on your cheek. An arrow of starlings fired from the windbreak's thatch. The glitter of dew that stays where it is and steams all day. A sunflower, four more, one bowed, and horses in the distance standing rigid and still as toys, all nodding. 
Electric sounds of insects at their business. Ale-colored sunshine and pale sky and whorls of cirrus so high they cast no shadow. Insects all business all the time. Quartz and chert and schist and chondrite iron scabs in granite. Very old land. Look around you. The horizon trembling, shapeless. We are all of us brothers. Boom. I don't know if Robin O'Neill has ever had a guest on her podcast, me reading stuff. I don't think she has. But mm-hmm. if she, but Robin, if you are looking for a guest <laughs> to have on your show, Jill Braithwaite is, <laughs> is where it's at. Reading that right. passage. <laughs> Thank, thanks for reading that, Jill. I that really was appreciate that was it. really nice. Sure, I really you enjoyed bet. that. So and that, and thanks for being um, with us tonight. It's been really enjoyable. I, I feel like there's yes. still. Um, so a lot, a lot more material. to talk about. A lot <laughs> so more fun to talk so. with you guys. It was just it's great. Really I really fun. appreciate you, it. Jill. Absolutely. Um, do you want to give a shout out? You, uh, now we kind of trashed Twitter a little bit, but do you want to <laughs> give a shout out to your Twitter name? And Sure. I am at know. Jill MPLS on Twitter. Minneapolis, baby. That's right. <laughs> baby. And do um, you, um, is your is your thesis online somewhere? Somebody can find I it? I don't or? think it is. Okay. That's it's even more mysterious now. That's <laughs> right. But hit me up on Twitter and I would send it to you. Oh, perfect. If someone was interested in reading it. Yeah, you're cool. going to get someone. I guarantee you. We'll see. If you yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth reading, though. I really like it. Oh, great. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much, you guys. This was hey, fun. Thank you, Jill. We really appreciated talking to you. Um, are you planning to be at the Wallace Conference this year? I'm probably not going to make it. There's a possible uh, last-minute change, okay. but it doesn't look good. My year has a lot of travel in it. Yeah, it isn't. Yeah. Okay, well, our fingers How about you, Dave? Are you going to be there? Yeah, I'm planning to be there. Uh, Matt doesn't think I should go because uh, I'll have a two-month-old at the time, but oh. uh, my wife's really cool, so she, so far <laughs> she's like, you should go. And you know, if if our daughter turns out to be a real handful or something, we I might have to revisit that sure, idea. Yes. But it's it's uh, green. The green light is on for now. We'll see. <laughs> what's what's her due date? Uh, April 9th. Ooh, so soon. It's yeah. It's getting real here, guys. It's less that than a is month. To go. Excellent. That's but great. I'm really I'm really excited. I just can't wait to meet her. Oh yeah, wonderful. Yeah, we, we have the name picked out and everything. We'll, Are we'll you sharing? It. Show. Wow. Announce After, it later. We'll announce it later. How about okay? Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> yeah, it'll Sounds be fun. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, Matt, where can the people find us online? Where, we didn't. We forgot to do this last episode. I know right? we we <laughs> forgot it last week, but um, that's okay. People I, will, I will right. say, if you want to contact us, we really like getting email. Concavity Show at gmail dot com. Um, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Concavity Show at Concavity Show, and you can get us on Facebook now. Yeah. I, I think it's facebook.com slash concavity show. Probably. Probably. I think of, just, of all the things, I tend to use the Facebook one the least. But, yeah, me mm-hmm. too. Me um, too. You know, Facebook. We're is on kind of, there somewhere. Um, yeah, we're around. We're around for sure. Um, and I will say, if you want to get um, any stickers or bookmarks, email us at concavity show. Email is definitely the best way to get us on that. We still have a uh, product available, Matt? Definitely. <laughs> the storehouse definitely, <laughs> and, and I really want to encourage people to um, come to the conference too. Like, if there are Absolutely. people who are on the fence about coming to um, Illinois State University, I think it's the first weekend in June. Mm-hmm. 
please come because Jill. It's so fun. It's such a fun conference. Jill's going to vouch for it right there. Boom. It's worth it. (laughs) It's been fun. Mm -hmm. June 8th, 9th, and 10th. So Dave and I will be there. We're going to do a live episode. Yes. Um, Oh, that's great. Record it live. Yeah. We're going to love it. And do some audience uh, participation mm. and stuff. We got some prizes now, Dave. Yeah, yeah. We're going to keep that a secret, but we have well, some sure. <laughs> we have some giveaways and um, come to the conference. We're going to maybe even look at Facebook Live broadcasting that too. Oh, yeah, that's and a good idea. It's an easy Her- way. Periscope or something like that. Something like nice. that. Yeah, so, cool. Um, good call, good call. But it's on the, it's on the conference agenda. Yes. So we yep. will, we will be there in full effect with the podcast. So please come and support us, uh, if nothing <laughs> yeah. else. Mm-hmm. We need we need to to feel validated. So <laughs> nothing. Please, please come. Nothing. I got nothing else though, man. I th- <laughs> thanks for coming. Um, thanks again, Jill. It's yeah. Been thank you so much, you guys. It was great. Uh, as usual. All right. Take care. Take care. Mama Cita. Before we get started, too, I have to apologize for the lateness and that oh, that's um, fine, man. I just got hit with like a double whammy of my kids not being mm-hmm. adjusted to the time change at all. Oh, yeah. And yeah. tomorrow is the first day of spring break. Oh. So there's a lot of anticipation of like, we can just sleep in and have fun. We can stay up late. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no you can't. <laughs> like, Go to bed. Uh, <laughs> so the the spring break plus the daylight savings time is just like really hard to to, to commit to like a time. Oh yeah. So yeah. apologies for that. And plus, you're reading them a terrible book about nuclear war. Oh, you know what? We've we've really? finished that. That's good. Uh, you're reading them, them Cormac McCarthy's The Road. <laughs> <laughs> they're a little young. Is that so them? wrong? No, <laughs> I tell you what. Though we got this book. It's Phil, not Phil Bildner. Who is it? Nathan Hale. This writer named Nathan Hale. Yeah, and yeah, we, the graphic novels. You know him? Sure. Yeah. We have a Nathan Hale book right now that's about the Donner Party. <laughs> so, yeah. So popular, <laughs> those books, Donner? right? Dude, he came Donner. to the school. Donner. Do you know the Donner Party story, Dave? No, it's, it's cannibalism. Not. It's cannibalism. <laughs> but real. It really Whoa. happened. It really happened. On the, It's like the Oregon Trail, right? And these people get oh. stranded up in the mountains. Oh, Things yeah. get a little messed up in the snow. It's just like- 19th century or 18th century American history? 19th century. 19th. Yep, okay. yep. Huh. Manifest destiny equals yeah. town. <laughs> so, so Nathan Hale comes to the school every year, and um, we buy one of his books, and this oh, is the cool. one we got. I was like, I actually kind of want to see how they deal with cannibalism in a children's book. Oh, yeah. I could send you another graphic novel about that that I worked on. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. let's, let's save this for the podcast. Yes, yes, yes. This is getting too good, guys. Got to bring it in here. <laughs>